This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. The arts, sports, history, sometimes some policy, and never screaming, never yelling. And we love to tell soldiers' stories on this show, and first responders. And by the way, on the soldiers' front, we don't wait until Veterans Day or Memorial Day to tell those stories, because our men and women are out there every day, and always have been, all year round. And this story, well, it's a doozy. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to meet Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez later in this hour. But first, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And again, then we'll hear from Benavides himself tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant, Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. 
Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude. For service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. What a story, huh, folks? Yep, real American doing that. A real-life human being did that, not some movie character. And when we come back, we're going to hear from that real-life human being. We're going to hear from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez, Medal of Honor winner for his valor in Vietnam. And wait till you hear his voice. You're going to love him. More... After these messages, this is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our podcast there. Listen to what we do there. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who is the man behind the legend? Here is Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began. I come from a little town named Quero, Texas. I was born there in the Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father, at an early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle. We moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, about an hour and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs there. Shine shoes, sold papers, pay cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn a skill. I needed an education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard. And I liked what I saw in men in uniform. And I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learned the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army, and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. So I qualified to go to jump school at Fort Bend, Georgia. But the Dern recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. Well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know it's as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learn oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross-trained medic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, and I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a southern accent. Feeling danke, danke schön. So I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg, and Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to Vietnamese infantry unit. After a short period of time there, I stepped on a mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Clark Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers. Now, most people would take a landmine, paralysis, and discharge papers as subtle hints to start plans for your retirement, but not Benavides. That night, I would slip out of bed 
and crawl to a wall, using my elbows and my chin. My back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against the wall, and I'd back myself up against the wall, and I'd stand there like Elijah the Indian. I'd stand there and move my toes right and left, right. Every single chance I got, I got. I wanted to walk. I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, that our president was not needed there, to burn the flag, what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back. I was determined because I remember when I was taught in jump school, that old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? So I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words. Never. So there I was at night, I'd slip out of bed, the nurses would catch me sometime, they would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep, they would tell the doctors in the morning, I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry, even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. I jumped out of bed and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching, I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Benavides, if you walk out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out with a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again running five or ten miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam, physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor. But being a non-commissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. So I, so I went back to Vietnam in 1968. And so now he's back in Vietnam, and the war, well, it's ramping up. Latter part of April, I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligence information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye, the back, and legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the McGuire rig. McGuire rig is nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In this case, there was two ropes. We hooked on, the enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our rope started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, it burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisted and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter, riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes, separated them, 
that dedication, that love of fellow men and country. I'll never forget that man. We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter he expired. There was nothing more he could do for his friend. And so Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez naturally got right out and back to work again. I was in another staging area waiting for an extra assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice. Get us out of here. Get us out of here. Come in and get us out quick ASAP. I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind them. We saw a helicopter coming in, land, and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped the door gunner, Michael Craig, 19 years old. We just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, My God, my mother and father. I asked the pilot, Who are the people on the ground? He said, Hey, he said, This is that black NCO, that non commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy Wright. Leroy always got paid for top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So it was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter, got on the helicopter, we got on with the forward air controller to guide us in, he said, you can't go in there, you can't go in, it's too hot. Little did I know that I was going to spend six hours in hell. And when we come back, more from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez. His story, here on Our American Stories. And we just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun over the radio. So he decided to jump on a chopper against everyone's sane advice. As he says, he did not know that would be the start of his six hours in hell. He was practically a one-man army, providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly, wounded, and secure classified documents. Here again... Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. You heard what the president read the citation of how I earned the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through when I in, engaged in the hand-to-hand combat. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, 
I was holding my intestines in my hand. We lifted up the helicopter, had it over its payload. Blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked me in our staging area. And it started unloading. It started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified material, so if anybody had it, that, uh, he was on a helicopter. So they left, they left the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags. And I remember that my feet had been lifted, and I was inserted into the body bag, and I could hear that zipper coming up, and I thought, oh my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face, my eyes, and the blood had dried up in my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked, and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance, and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, sorry, there's nothing I can do for him. Oh my God, and that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, I find out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. <laughs> so the doctor said, I think he'll make it. He'll... So I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up, put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying, I was moving so much at the co-pilot. He happened to look back, and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, get his bayonet out, and he's going to do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. <laughs> That's just too much for one day. <laughs> so they... We landed in the hospital at, at uh, Long Bend, and I was wheeled to the operating room. And as I was being lifted to my operating table, I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God, why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And as I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing. I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while, my buddy was transferred from there, and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa, and that airplane that I was flying in, Matavac, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me, Benavides, you're not going to die on me. 
I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor. I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? Had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, that lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> so after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the Beach Pavilion, and I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career, and then I was awarded with a medal. And by the way, there are so many heroes in this story, as we learn, and he's quick to give credit. Those nurses, boy, they do unbelievable work. You're not going to die on me, Benavidez. And boy, did she make sure of it. After all of this, Benavidez recovered, and then he moved back to Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero. I appreciate the title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives, our mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospitals, disabled for life in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, life has a special flavor that protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud to be an American, and even prouder. And I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. What a speech. We got to play that a few times a year. It just has to be done. You've never lived until you almost died. And those three words, duty, honor, country, and they're not platitudes when you hear it from this man. They're real. He's the real deal. This is Lee Habib, Mastin Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story. The Medal of Honor winner, Vietnam vet, and just what an American, and what an American story. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. OurAmericanNetwork.org.
www.thepeopleshow.org. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and it's time for our Tocqueville Live segment, where we hear about the associations and organizations that ordinary Americans form each and every day to solve problems in their community, and of course, to just plain enjoy each other's company. And by the way, Frenchman Alexis Tocqueville came to this country to write about this grand experiment called democracy in the 19th century and came away with a book called Democracy in America. And he wrote extensively about the associations in this country. I wanted to read you a brief excerpt. Americans of all ages, he wrote, all conditions and all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religious and moral, very general and very particular, immense organizations and small ones. Americans use associations to found seminaries, build inns, raise churches, distribute books, and send missionaries abroad. In this manner, they create hospitals, prisons, schools, and so much more. And today we bring you the story of Scott Gilbert, the head of a Habitat for Humanity chapter, and the strange journey he took to get there. I went and taught school at a private school in Connecticut. Pretty quickly was elevated to be the head of the middle school. Was coaching several sports, and I loved it. But decided to cover my base. I'd go back and get an MBA at night. I went to the University of Connecticut Stanford branch, which if I say quickly, it sounds like Stanford. Now that's a pretty good MBA. University of Connecticut, not bad, but it's not Stanford. But anyhow, depending who I'm playing with, I might skip part of that and just say Stanford. So as I was completing my fourth year and getting my MBA, I'd gotten a raise from 15,000 up to 18,500. I said, wow, this is really kind of challenging. And I was very conscious of one of the guys I taught with He had three boys, he worked, his wife worked, he had a second job. He was probably in his mid-30s and he was miserable. He hated the school, he started to hate the kids, he hated their parents because they didn't pay well enough and he couldn't get it together and he really resented life. And I remember saying, I need to move on. I don't want to be one of those guys. I don't want to be caught in a bind and looking for someone to blame for my situation. So I took my master's degree, got a job with a wonderful advertising agency, and ended up working with that agency for 25 years. And then at some point I was you know, transferred to New York and we had a vacation home in Colorado. My wife said, hey, I'll live in Colorado, come home when you want. I'm stopping on the way to New York, I'm getting off the bus, you can keep going. So for a couple of years I was one of the co-leaders of our New York office. We had hundreds of staff members and 
I was age 50, my kids were both graduating from college, and I was like, you know, this advertising run's been awesome, I loved what I did, but here I was 50, going back and forth to New York to Aspen, Colorado, thinking this traveling back and forth every week's gonna kill me, and so I decided to retire at 50 because I'd made enough money to put my kids through college, and that to me was a major accomplishment and what I'm supposed to do, and kind of at 50, wasn't sure what to do. I probably stared out the window for a good, better part of a year. <laughs> the only appointments I had were taking the garbage out on Thursdays and getting my hair cut once a month. But then I saw an ad in the paper for a program called the Pre-Collegiate Program, which is a mentoring program for students who'd be the first generation in their family to go to college. So I called up a superintendent of schools I knew and another head of school and had them write letters and I realized pretty soon thereafter that I didn't need a very strong recommendation. They just needed warm bodies. But spent several years mentoring Latino kids here in the Valley and got very connected to their lives. And in the meantime, I was looking for more to do and I'd heard about Habitat for Humanity and explored that a little bit. And at the same time, my daughter graduated college, came to work to be a teacher in Denver we checked out some garden apartments and they weren't very nice and I said, you know, we just spent a lot of money putting my daughter through college. She wants to be a teacher. I want to set her up for success, somewhat unlike how I was set up, such that we could find a small home that I could own and she could part own and she could rent out rooms to some fellow teachers and friends and as long as she wanted to teach, she could stay in that house and if she wanted to leave teaching, we could negotiate that. I was really enjoying Habitat, but I was thinking about my life where I couldn't stay as a classroom teacher, which I wanted to at the time, but thought it wasn't viable. My daughter couldn't make it work as a teacher herself without some help. But what could I do to help in an environment where I live, which is a resort market, with very high price real estate and homes? $750,000 doesn't get you much. I mean, it's really crazy. How are teachers ever going to make it? I can't personally buy homes for all these teachers, there's no way, but I could possibly shift Habitat's focus from people caught in a cycle of poverty who really probably aren't ready for home ownership and shift our focus to try to help people who are gainfully employed but sort of locked in underemployment such that they can live here but they never be able to afford to own a home. And one of the most critical areas is the difficulty teachers are having and how can the teachers ever afford to live here and without teachers in all of a community. And now suddenly my life's threads sort of connected and now I could take Habitat, which we've built into a thriving nonprofit and shift its focus to an area which we found to be more appropriate use of everybody's time and money in our community. We got the school district to donate land that was being underutilized and had no particular purpose besides being like a buffer and got the county also looking for help with the workforce to support it. So the school district gave six acres of land. The county gave $3 million to help with the infrastructure, which is putting in the utilities and the roads. And the next thing you know, we had a viable project. The need is staggering. We had 42 different families applied for the nine spots. So basically it was you know, less than 25% chance of winning the lottery. I've got an ex-felon working here. He's a wonderful guy, he's been Employee of the Year. We had another ex-felon who was Employee of the Year. 
Someone who's been incarcerated really appreciates freedom more than someone who's always had the freedom. One guy had been a drug dealer out in Ohio. I don't even know what violation the second guy had. There's no reason to ask him. It doesn't really matter to me what he did or didn't do. And so I treat him with the ultimate respect because um, he treats us that way, and I, and I don't want him to ever think he's being prejudged because there's no reason to. So we've got a couple of felons who work for us, but more importantly, we actually have an amazing program. We have a state prison about an hour from our job site, and the prison crew went out and helped on various projects in the community. They would help the Department of Transportation shovel snow, and one of the guys working there a guy named Chad Robinson, he really believed that giving them more meaningful work to do while they were out on work crews would have a more lasting impact. I mean, anybody can pick up litter on the highway, but get them working on a crew, building homes for habitat, would give them more skills and a greater sense of value and give them a better chance when they got out. So when the guys come two, three, or four days a week, a crew of five to eight guys come in a van with, you know, one of the guards. He's not armed. These are guys in a level one minimum security prison who have been through the system or heading towards release. But the really nice thing at the job site is we've had times where we've had a good nucleus of guys and we end up doing training with them and train them to get what's called a best card. And it's a card that enables them to actually be a contractor. They have to pass a test. The last time we had eight guys take our class and they went for the test, they all passed the test. The town official couldn't believe they all passed, couldn't believe eight prisoners would study that hard, work that hard to pass the test. He waived the fee. So what's nice is, you know, we're getting these guys to come help. We feed them like kings to give them some respect. And we're preparing them for when they get out, they actually have a skill. And what's weird is the skill... What you and I would think in building a home is, you know, how to use tools and how to learn how to frame a home. But the skill is really learning what it's like to have a job, learning what it's like to take direction and not think someone's disrespecting you. So, you know, guys end up in prison because they haven't found a better way to make a living. And we're giving them a chance to break free from their vices. And a similar story that's really stunning we get a lot of nice donations for our restore, and some stuff just doesn't make the grade that our customers are going to buy. So we put that into a big truck, and every few weeks this group comes up from southern Colorado and takes it back and sells it in a thrift store there. We had no idea who they were. At Christmas time, this guy came in with a gift basket. I said, can you explain what you guys actually do? Because I'm not sure I know. I know you take our leftovers. He said, yeah, we have this group called New Horizons, ministry and we take the things that you give us we sell it and we use that money to take care of babies while their moms are incarcerated you know up to two or three years and then when their moms get out they get the babies back and every Wednesday we take the babies to visit their moms well they moved that prison so now it's a two-hour trip each way but we want the moms to see their babies and I was flabbergasted I had no idea uh, that something we were doing really just getting rid of things so we didn't throw them away was having such an interesting benefit on a pretty much underserved community and ignored. And it's just really heartwarming to know that the efforts we make have such a far-reaching impact.
And you've been listening to Scott Gilbert, the president of the Roaring Fork Valley chapter of Habitat for Humanity. And great job, as always, to Alex for his work out in the field. And the story was brought to our attention by Carrie Morgridge and her Morgridge Family Foundation that supported Scott's work. And with philanthropy, of course, being another form of association that Tocqueville touted and was mesmerized by when he came here in the 19th century. And it's still going strong. Stories you don't hear anywhere. Stories about American generosity and just grit and love. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and just decades following the signing of the U.S. Constitution in 1787, trailblazers called mountain men headed west. These adventures gave rise to new American heroes and new enemies, too. But these struggles and battles will forge the American character and will transform a colony into a country. Today's story is told to us by one of America's best Western storytellers, Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. By 1821, 24 U.S. states have been established. The population is something around 9.6 million. The country's border expands to the Missouri River, and beyond that border lies a vast western territory of brutal wilderness shrouded in myth. Conquering it requires extraordinary men. One of the greatest of these is Jedediah Smith. He was the first to come overland into California. He's the first known person to cross the Sierra Nevada. The first man to recognize the significance of the South Pass. Smith's discoveries beyond the Missouri surpassed those of even Lewis and Clark. Here's Jim Hardy, director of the Fur Trade Research Center. Without men like Jedediah Smith, and particularly his trails, we wouldn't have had an Oregon Trail. We wouldn't have had a gold rush, uh, because the, the, the routes to California and Oregon wouldn't have been there yet. Smith embodies the character of America, frontier grit, rugged individualism, survival. Jedediah Strong Smith is born the fourth of 12 children on January 6, 1799, in south-central New York State, to parents who descend from the Puritan settlers of Massachusetts. Following the expanding frontier, the family moves westward in 1810 to Erie, Pennsylvania, and two years later, Jedediah, now 13 years old, goes to work as a clerk on a freighter that sails the waters of Lake Erie. The young teenager becomes familiar with not only shipping and trading, but also the adventurous life of those who live farther to the West. Then in 1814, a family friend gives Jedediah a copy of the Journals of Lewis and Clark, and he devours the book. Here's the astronaut. Buzz Aldrin. 
Lewis and Clark want to see what's on the other side. Given a mountain, we want to climb it. We hold those venturers of the past uh, in, in great admiration. Then, in the spring of 1822, the 23-year-old is off on his own to the edge of Western civilization in St. Louis, Missouri. The city is the center of America's fastest growing industry, the fur trade. Here's Barton Barber, author of Jedediah Smith, No Ordinary Mountain Man. Jedediah's primary reason for going to St. Louis and then into the far west as a beaver hunter was motivated by his ambition, a word that he uses often, his ambition to make good at a time when the nation was in terrible economic condition after the panic of 1819 and closures of banks and uh, rural uh, mortgage failures. So he's driven by the urge to make good. That means he wants to make money. A skillful writer, Smith details his life in his journal. I intend to follow my strong inclination to visit this unexplored country and unfold those hidden resources of wealth bring to light those wonders which I readily imagine a country so extensive might contain. Jedediah Smith becomes a regular reader of the Missouri Gazette and Public Advertiser, the town's leading newspaper. One day an advertisement on page three catches his eye. Wednesday morning, February 13th, 1822. To enterprising young men, the subscriber wishes to engage 100 men to ascend the River Missouri to its source, there to be employed for one, two, or three years. For particulars, inquire of Major Andrew Henry near the lead mines or the subscriber at St. Louis. Signed by one General William H. Ashley. It was almost as if his life was, was lined up for that particular moment, to be able to read that article. Next. Smith gets to William Ashley Name? as fast as he can. Thomas Mitchell. Next. What do you do? A trapper. Name? Jedediah Smith. Welcome, Mr. Smith. The Ashley Henry Fur Company. Yeah, yeah, thanks, man. Let's go. It is from these beaver trapping expeditions that the new mountain man emerges. But there's something about Smith's character that sets him apart from these other young adventurers. Smith is a devout Christian, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't chase women. He is long on courage and clear thinking in a tight spot. His Bible and gun are his closest companions. As Phil Anschutz writes of Smith in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Smith was hardly a stereotypical mountain man, yet few mountain men earn greater respect from their peers. Here's fur trade historian Rex Norman and Jim Hardy. Uh, there was something about his nature that seemed to exude to people confidence. Uh, trustworthiness and boldness. He had read Lewis and Clark's journals. Lewis and Clark takes this expedition all the way out to the Pacific Ocean and back over a period of little more than two and a half years. 
And you read that and, and you can get caught up in the romance. You can get caught up in the, in the wonder of, of what's out there. And I think Jed was uh, suffering from a little wanderlust. I want to be the first to view a country on which the eyes of a white man have never gazed and to follow the course of rivers that run through a new land. And when we return, more on the life of Jedediah Smith here on Our American Stories. Return to the life of Jedediah Smith. This is our American stories. In that last segment, you heard about three words that described him confidence, trustworthiness, and boldness. And now let's pick up where we left off with the 23 year old Jedediah Smith joining the beaver trapping expedition of 1822. The Ashley Henry expedition ascends the Missouri River in two keelboats during the spring of 1822. For 22 weeks, the men travel nearly 1,400 miles, covering some 5 to 20 miles a day. When spring arrives in 1823, the 24-year-old Jedediah Smith has spent his first winter trapping beaver at the Muscle Shell River in central Montana. But the pelts come with a price. The local Indians have stolen almost all of the mountain men's horses. Oh, Jay, we can't afford to lose any more horses. Because of this, Andrew Henry looked for someone to carry a message to William Ashley, asking him to buy horses from the Arikara Indians at their village on the Missouri River. I'll go. It'd be dangerous traveling all by yourself. Here's historian Mike Moore. To me, Jedediah is the epitome of a man's man in the West. He's mentally and physically tough. He's brave. He doesn't say, I cannot do that. He just says, let's go. They soon reach the Arikara Indian village near present-day Mobridge, South Dakota. Ashley approaches the village cautiously with some 40 men to negotiate with Chief Grey Eyes, Tobacco. who met Lewis and Clark in 1806 and earned a reputation as an iron-willed negotiator. We need horses, but many blankets, many other things to trade for. Smith is left in command of the shore party, trade. positioned on the sandbar. Trade. <laughs> Ashley manages to conclude a deal trading kettles, blankets, knives, and supplies of all kinds for horses. All seems fine. The Rickra deliver the horses to the sandbar, but before Ashley's men can swim them to the opposite bank of the Missouri, a violent storm sweeps down upon them. The shore party now has to remain with the horses on the sandbar overnight. This gives the Rickra plenty of time to think about the situation. There are six or seven hundred Rickra warriors 
and a mere 40 Ashley men down below on the sandbar. Why not annihilate them and capture the keelboats with all the cargo and weapons aboard? At the break of day, on June 2nd, 1823, Smith and the others on the sandbar hear the crack of rifles and lead balls begin ripping into their position. Horses start toppling over and men dive behind them for cover. Within minutes, most of the horses and several of the men are dead. The Arikaras unleashed a fusillade of hundreds of flintlock guns. Arikara archers were also launching clouds of arrows as best they could. With this massed firepower, these guys on the exposed sandbar were in deep, deep trouble. By the twos and threes, men dive into the river and are swept downstream. Smith makes it into the river unscathed, and later is hauled aboard a keelboat. Well, as Jed's leaving, he's looking at a beach that's strewn with the bodies of, of a dozen or so of his comrades um, and all these dead horses they had just traded for, and there's nothing that he can do. But my thoughts I kept to myself, knowing that a few words from me would discourage my men. Altogether, 13 men are killed at the battle site, and two others later die of their wounds. Jed, you speak the word. Erikra evidently suffer few casualties. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The battle is one of the deadliest in the history of the Western fur trade. Amen. You shall be avenged. Survivors of the attack head downstream and reach Colonel Henry Leavenworth at Fort Atkinson, about 15 miles north of present-day Omaha, Nebraska. Leavenworth organizes what one fur trader called the Missouri Legion, some 350 soldiers, another 75 or 80 mountain men and trappers, and then Sioux warriors who saw a great opportunity here to have Uncle Sam help destroy their inveterate enemies, the Arikara. On August 9, 1823, six weeks after the Arikara battle, the mountain men are organized into two companies, and Jedediah Smith is made captain of one of the companies. When the force reaches the Arikara villages, the Lakota Sioux waste no time and immediately begin pouring fire into the Arikaras without any plan of attack. Here's historian of the American Indian, Jimmy Chastine. They didn't wait on Leavenworth and his troops. They came to fight, and they fought. They went right up to the defenses of the Arikara, and they got right into the thick of the action. Jedediah Smith and Colonel Leavenworth's forces have no choice but to join in. Fifty Arikara are dead, and Sioux managed to kill Chief Gray Eyes. The Missouri Legion suffers no losses. The Arikara signal they want to parlay. Erikra subsequently agreed to all of Colonel Leavenworth's demands. And Leavenworth calls off further attack. The Lakota Sioux are outraged. The Lakota people thought it was stupid and disgusting that the whites didn't carry through this fight against the Erikras. That boosted the Lakota's contempt for white soldiers and their power. 
Jedediah Smith and the other mountain men are also outraged, knowing it is simply an Arikara ploy to gain time. The mountain men are right. That night, the Arikara slip out of their village and disappear. Smith heads west and spends the next three years leading trapping parties through the Rocky Mountains. It's the beginning of expeditions that will earn him five historic firsts. The first of these is pioneering a trail through South Pass. Together with some Crow Indians, friend James Kleiman and Tom Fitzpatrick, Smith establishes a trail through a 20 mile wide valley, the one opening through the Rockies. It is the door to Oregon and California. The route will be taken by pioneers on the Oregon Trail, the Stagecoach, the Pony Express, and the Union Pacific Railroad. That fall, Jed and his crew blazed through grizzly country in present-day South Dakota. The grizzly bear is the most deadly frontier beast, up to 10 feet tall and 1,000 pounds, with claws six inches long. Grizzlies don't fear anything on Earth including man. The grizzly was the largest, most powerful animal in North America at the time. It had nothing above it in the food chain. It looked at everything as a potential source of food. It stood up, it towered over you. You could pump bullets into the thing and it would still come at you. It was literally a monster. Suddenly they hear this thrashing in the underbrush nearby. Grizzly! Sure enough, a grizzly bear bursts out of the thickets, get those horses back. smashes into the line of march. And Jed is in the front, and he runs up into this clearing. And I think that Jed running drew that bear to him. The bear attacks. The bear immediately grabbed him in a vicious and deadly bear hug and seized Jedediah's head in his jaws. And as he pulls his head away, pulls his jaws off, he just rips the scalp. And when we come back, we continue with the story of Jedediah Smith. And by the way, so many of our stories about the American West can be heard at OurAmericanNetwork.org. So many of them we picked out of Phil Anschutz's two terrific books, Out Where the West Begins, Volume 1 and 2. Those hours include The Life of Samuel Colt, Adolf Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, and John D. Rockefeller. And without this cast of characters, from businessmen to, well, mountain men, the American West wouldn't have been the American West. And when we continue, more of the story of Jedediah Smith here on Our American Stories.
A mountain man's a lonely man and he leaves a lot behind. It ought to have been different, but you oftentimes will find that the story doesn't always go the way you had in mind. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jedediah Smith. We want to find out what happens to him after he's been viciously attacked by a grizzly bear. There lay Jedediah in a bloody heap. His men are panic-stricken. There's no surgeons there. They don't know what the heck to do, and nobody wants to lay their hands on this guy's mangled face. You going to sit around and watch me bleed to death? Captain, uh, what's best to do? Give me a blanket. Somebody get some water. And the only one who's not panicking is Jedediah Smith. And he's saying, all right, guys, you need to work on me here. Jedediah's friend, James Kleiman, describes the incredible ordeal in his journal. Get some water. Captain said, send one or two men for water. And if you have a needle and thread, get it out and sew up my wounds around my head. Climbing, you got a needle and thread, you got to get it out now. I got no thread. I got some fine sinew in there. It'll have to do. You're going to have to work on me right here. I got a pair of scissors and cut off his hair and then began my first job of dressing wounds. Upon examination, the bear had taken nearly all his head in its capacious mouth and torn his face from his left eye to his right ear and laid the skull bear near the crown of his head. Sew it up tight, you sew it up tight, Carmen. Yes, I don't need to bleed to death right here. One of his ears was torn from his head out to the outer rim. After stitching all the other wounds in the best way I was capable, the ear was last. Then I put in my needle, stitching it through and through, and over and over laying the parts together as nice as I could. I got it. Miraculously, the stitching job is successful, although Smith is left with a frightful scar. He grows his hair long and styles it with a distinct comb-over to hide the vivid red scar, missing eyebrow and displaced ear. It becomes his signature look. Just 10 days after the attack, Jed Smith is back on his horse and heads west to high beaver country, 600 miles away. Smith's trapping skills earn him the record for beaver pelts taken in one season. He arrives at the annual rendezvous with 668 pelts, which sell for $6 a piece, earning him some $4,000. That's more than $400,000 in today's money. Smith is so successful as a mountain man that in 1826, at 27 years of age, and five years of experience already as a trapper, he organizes his own fur trading company and brings in David Jackson and William Sublette as partners. For the next five years, Smith's company dominates the American fur trade. The 1826 Mountain Man Rendezvous is held at the Great Salt Lake in Utah. When it concludes, Smith assembles a party of 20 men, 
having talked them in to an audacious plan to blaze a trail through the Mexican province of California. Now, the map beyond the Great Salt Lake is a blank. The Indians are unable to help. They can't answer Smith's questions about this unmapped region. All anyone knows is somewhere, maybe a thousand miles to the west, is this place called California. Smith and party leave the Great Salt Lake in August 1826, and he becomes the first to travel the length and breadth of the Great Basin. Jedediah's greatest accomplishment was probably getting across the Great Basin virtually on foot. And they basically walked across the deserts of Nevada. When he got ready to go to California, there were guys ready to follow him uh, into lands that nobody had been to before. They didn't know what they would find, but they were willing to follow Jedediah Smith. They travel southwest, and by November, after a little more than three months on the trail, Smith and his party reach Mission San Gabriel, some 10 miles east of the small Pueblo of Los Angeles. Today, a city of four and a half million people, Los Angeles then had but 1,500 residents. Jed Smith and his men are the first Americans to cross overland to California. Most of the route of Smith's expedition is followed today by Interstate 15. Smith and his men spend the winter at a cap on the Stanislaus River in the San Joaquin Valley. When spring arrives, Smith attempts another first. He and two of his trappers head for the 1827 Mount Man Rendezvous at Bear Lake on the border of Utah and Idaho, but to do so, they have to cross the Sierra Nevada mountains. Despite encountering snowfields up to eight feet deep, the men struggle across the mountains in eight days. Theirs is the first recorded crossing of the rugged mountain range. And ironically for Americans, the direction of travel in this first recorded crossing of the Sierra Nevada is from west to east. When Smith and the two others arrive at the rendezvous early in July 1827, cheers erupt and a small cannon is fired in salute. The mountain man had given up Smith and his party for dead. No one believed that he could still be alive. No one could believe that he did what he did. The, the thing that stands out to me when I think about Jed Smith and his accomplishments is, is the really remarkable amount of terrain that he covered, the extraordinary uh, trips that he made through territory which was uncharted, unmapped, unknown, with such ease that he traveled across the landscape. After spending a week at the rendezvous, 28-year-old Smith heads for California again. This time he has a party of 19 mountain men with him. Traveling by the route of the previous year, Smith arrives at the Mojave Indian Settlement on the Colorado River in August of 1827. Smith is met the tribe before and traded with them and doesn't expect any trouble. His medicine was considered strong amongst a lot of the native nations that had dealt with him. They understood that there were special things about him that put him over and above other men. 
and, and they respected that. They brought him pumpkins and squash. He got good information. He got guides that took him across the desert, showed him water holes, got him all the way over to the Mission San Gabriel. But something was different on the second trip. Men set up camp for the night and prepare for departure in the morning. At daybreak, Smith and the mountain men must first cross the Colorado River. Smith leaves 10 of his men on the eastern shore while he and eight others transport themselves and part of their supplies on small rafts across the Colorado. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens to Jedediah Smith, also to those men left behind. This is Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. This is Our American Story, and now the final installment of Jedediah Smith's journey across the West and back. Let's pick up where we last left off. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. They look back on the bank, and all of a sudden, these these eight or ten guys that are with the party that are still there are just surrounded by Mojaves. This incredible shout goes up. They're looking back at their party, and they're just being annihilated. They're being clubbed and beaten, and spears, knives, tomahawks, right before their eyes. They're being killed. Here's Smith looking through the willows, seeing his men being slaughtered. Total surprise, total shock. Uh, can only imagine what might have been going through his head at that particular time. I thought it most prudent to go to the bank of the river and select the spot on which we might sell our lives at the dearest rate. They fall back into this little grove of trees. They begin to ford up. They use their knives to chop down uh, some smaller uh, branches and make them like spears. They tie their knives under the end of the spears and they pile up some logs to, to make sort of a fort there. Some of the men asked if I thought we would be able to defend ourselves. I told them I thought we would, but that was not my opinion. Thus poorly prepared, we waited the approach of our unmerciful enemies. 
one side, the river prevented them from approaching us, but in every other direction, the Indians were closing in upon us. All right, my two best shots. I need you to take your aim and fire, but do not fire until you know you're going to make a kill. As the Mojaves approach, Jed has his two best marksmen shoot and kill two of the Mojaves. That was just enough to make the Mojaves think twice about attacking. All right, hold your fire. We were released from the apprehension of immediate death. At nightfall, Smith and the survivors, many of them wounded, slip westward into the desert. He then blazes a trail through the mountains and forests of Northern California to the Pacific coast, and then up the coast into Oregon. Smith's trailblazing takes him through the coast redwoods, and the mountain men gaze upon the tallest trees on Earth, some of them nearly 400 feet high. The area today is Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park. Once in Oregon, now mid-July, 1828, Smith leads his men up the coast to the Umpqua River, and then up the river a short distance to a large village of Kilowatset Indians, part of the Umpqua tribe. The Kilowatset seem friendly and gladly trade with the mountain men. Good, great. While his men trade with the Indians, the Kilowatset guide helps Smith scout the area ahead for the best route to Fort Vancouver. Upon returning to the village, though, Smith senses something's wrong. He stealthily creeps closer and sees the kilowatt set have killed, scalped, and mutilated his men. The Kilowatsets used axes, knives, and whatever came to hand to murder these Americans as quickly as they possibly could. Well, Smith could do nothing but creep back up the trail and begin what became a three-week, 200-mile journey north to Fort Vancouver, the great Hudson Bay Company post, located on the north bank of the Columbia River in today's state of Washington. He's the first individual known to have gone from California to the Columbia River. So he explored the west coast of the United States. Smith remains in the Oregon country trading and trapping until March 1829. The seven years of incomprehensibly hard living has taken a toll on both his physical and spiritual being. Here's Jedediah Smith scholar, James Hall. He does write a letter home, the famous letter on Christmas Eve, 1829, and he really pours his heart out, and he really lets it all go about how much he misses his spiritual life and how much he wants people to pray for him out here. And here's a chance for him to, to let loose and get personal, knowing that this letter is going to be read by his family. In August 1827, ten men who were in company with me lost their lives by the Indians on the Colorado River. In July 1828, fifteen men with me lost their lives by the Umpqua Indians. Many others have lost their lives in different parts of the country. We have many dangers to face, 
and many difficulties to encounter. With respect to my spiritual welfare, I durst hardly speak. I find myself one of the most ungrateful, unthankful creatures imaginable. I have need of your prayers. During his stay, Smith gains an intimate knowledge of the Oregon country and notes there are almost no British settled there. Earlier, Smith saw that Mexican control of California is tenuous, and the population of Mexicans is no more than seven or eight thousand. Moreover, almost none of them have settled north of San Francisco Bay or in the interior valleys. Both the Oregon country and California are ripe for the taking. Smith feels it's his duty as an American to make his observations known to officials in Washington, in particular, Secretary of War John Eaton. Smith sends a long, detailed letter to Secretary Eaton that reveals not only Smith's writing skills and command of the language, but also his comprehensive understanding of geopolitical strategy. Smith also sends precise descriptions of his trailblazing and copies of his maps. In effect, Smith becomes an explorer and strategist for the U.S. government. Yet Smith is a buckskin-clad mountain man, and he continues to lead trapping parties until August 1830, when he retires to St. Louis. Smith has made and saved enough money to live comfortably as a gentleman. At just 31 years of age, he's the most experienced man in the West. Time to call it quits. He made a vast amount of money uh, in a very short period of time. And by the time he was 31 years old, uh, he had probably the equivalent of a half million dollars in today's money, uh, which was a fantastic amount uh, for then. And it's pretty, it's no chump change for today. However, Smith is intrigued by the large profits St. Louis traders are making on the Santa Fe Trail. Early in 1831, Smith leads a trade caravan he has organized from St. Louis en route to Santa Fe. By late May, the caravan has moved into the dreaded Cimarron Desert. For three days, the traders push on and no water. There's no water here. I wanted to go look for some. It's Comanche up there. You guys stay here with the men. I'll be back. Smith scouts far out of the wagons. Several miles out, he comes upon a water hole. Too late. He realizes that lying in wait at the waterhole is a hunting party of some 20 Comanche, including a chief. They're waiting for buffalo, but Smith will do just fine. Smith knows that a bold approach is now his only hope, and he rides directly up to the Comanche, tries to communicate with them in the sign language of the plains but they ignore his peaceful gestures and begin to circle to his rear. Suddenly, Smith's nervous horse wheels about, exposing Smith's back to the Comanche. Instantly, 
Comanche fire, and the musket ball rips into Smith. He gasps at the impact, but is able to turn his horse about and lets his rifle roar. Smith's single shot drills the Comanche chief in the chest, and he drops to the ground dead. Smith kills two more Comanche with his pistols before other Comanches close in. They thrust their long lances and repeatedly stab Smith. At just 32 years of age, Jedediah Smith's legendary luck finally runs out. The Comanche regard Smith as such a great warrior. They do not mutilate and dismember his body, but give him the same funeral rites they give their chief. Jed Smith has passed from life into history at a waterhole in the Cimarron Desert. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And again, thanks to Roger McGrath. He's our resident story on the American West, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And he taught at Pepperdine and UCLA and so many other Southern California universities, a legend as a teacher and storyteller. And so many of our stories are plucked from Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz, Volumes 1 and 2, Adolf Kors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and Kit Carson, just some of our favorites, and the life of Samuel Colt is a stemwinder. The Jedediah Smith story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 